As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. And he, I can't remember a Champions League knockout stage that was so dominated by one player. I mean, he was just almost single-handedly winning games. Hello, welcome. Thanks for choosing to listen to us today. It's the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. I'm Ali Maxwell. On this week's episode, we are talking Ballon d'Or 2022. Uh, A look at the winners and contenders from the men's Ballon d'Or the Copper Award, which is for under-21 men's players, and the Women's Award as well, to do that with me. Michael Cox and Mark Carey are here to give thoughts and opinions. Hello, gents. All well? Oh, well, Ali, how are you? I never ask you how you are. No one ever asks the presenter. (laughs) And that's why you're right up there as one of the best people I know, Mark. Uh, All very well, thank you. Lovely walk with the dog this morning, feeling fresh and and ready to go. Michael, you've never asked me how I am. <laughs> no. Uh yeah, all okay here. Pleased to hear you are well as well. There is a strong argument that these questions don't need to be asked because no one listening ultimately cares that much. Yeah, <laughs> I have I have often thought that, yeah. Hey, how about that Liverpool Man City game on the weekend? Previewed in depth last week on this podcast, probably with a, a hint of concern for how the game might have gone for Liverpool. Far from it, a 1-0 win. Uh, Michael, in breaking down this game for the Athletic early this week or or late on Sunday, what do you think were the key reasons for Liverpool winning the game? Well, it was a funny one. I mean, the goal was just a complete anomaly, essentially a set-piece or a counter-attack from a set-piece. But I thought Liverpool were pretty good throughout the game. I was surprised that Guardiola went with the system he did, kind of a three at the back, box in midfield. I thought that left a lot of space for Liverpool out wide. And I thought Liverpool actually could have exploited that a bit better. It was Harvey Elliott who was getting the most space out on the right. And much as I like Elliott, I mean, I think he's a brilliant player for his age. I did think Liverpool could have done with a real kind of proper speedy attacker down that side. And for me, that was the theme of the game. You know, that was what my article was about. Back in the day, you'd have Mane and Salah on the flanks for Liverpool and maybe Sterling and Sané on the flanks for City. Whereas in this game, you had uh, Jota, not really a winger, Elliot, not really a winger. Jao Cancelo, definitely not a winger. And probably Foden was the closest thing to a proper wide attacker. So to me, it was it just had a very different feel to a lot of the games between these two sides in the past. But yes, it was a very good game and a bit of a surprise result, if we're being honest. I mean, you're right, Ali. We were talking about 
I mean, I said if there's a lot of goals in this game, I, I fear for Liverpool. One good thing for them was that there wasn't many goals. Um, and I think they were probably the better side in the game. I think Liverpool just knew how dangerous Manchester City were. I thought, you know, Michael's piece on site outlined it brilliantly, but I think Liverpool were far less open to the counter-attacks that have basically plagued them this season, not just the goals, which have been so obvious, but the chances that they've given up that haven't led to goals. Um, and they were themselves really counter-attacking, I thought. And of course, I looked at the numbers and they had, Liverpool had 11 direct attacks, which I think we've spoken about before there, possessions that start in a, a team's defensive half and result in a shot or a touch inside the box within 15 seconds. So a proxy of counter-attacking play and 11 direct attacks is the, the highest that Liverpool have had um, in the last two and a half seasons. So it was really clear what Liverpool were, were looking to do. Maybe not as much go toe-to-toe with Manchester City like we've maybe seen in, in recent seasons, but stay compact, um, press when there was a sort of a moment, a trigger to press um, and make the most of, of counter-attacking play. And eventually the goal that came was, was essentially from that, albeit quite a direct one. Hugely impressive display and hugely impressive result. It'd be interesting to see Liverpool uh, cracking on from here and, until the, the break for the World Cup, at least. It'd uh, be fantastic to see them start to, to put together several dominant performances uh, and move back towards the top of the table and contribute to what might be quite an interesting title race uh, at this moment in time. That's how it feels anyway. Uh, Michael, you were at the Spurs-Everton game uh, over the weekend as well. Anything of tactical interest there? Well, it was a good match for you, Ali, because uh, Dwight McNeil was dropping back into something of a left wing-back role, which I haven't seen him do before, but I have seen suggested by you on this podcast. So I think you were the main winner from that fixture. So it was a a sort of hybrid role, was it? I I guess I can't claim, you know, full victory here yet until he's, you know, what, what, what sort of positions was he taking up? In possession, I gather he was dropping in to play the left of a five out of possession. So it's a good start. What about in possession? Because this was about crossing from deep and and actually not being the the one, uh, you know, getting to the byline necessarily. Yeah, I'd say he was more of a forward in possession, at least in theory. But they dropped him back to cope with, uh, who was on that side? Doherty on that side. So they were kind of matching Spurs front five with the back five. Um, and it meant Mikolenko dropped into a left-sided centre-back role. I mean, the thing is, Everton spent so long without the ball, it wasn't really that relevant what they did when, or what mm. he did when they had the ball. So, yeah, I mean, if you look at the average positions, I suspect he was very much a wing-back. Let's talk Ballon d'Or. The results on Monday night, the big gala, uh, and uh, and the winner, the Men's Award winner, Karim Benzema. Uh, Michael, he was he was fourth on the podium. Can you be fourth on a podium or is that limited to three spots? I'll get back to you on that. He came fourth <laughs> in the voting last season, uh, but he wins it this time around. The first French winner of the award since Zizou, 1998. The oldest winner of a Ballon d'Or since Stanley Matthews in 1956. Uh, your reaction to Benzema being crowned Ballon d'Or winner for the first time in his career. Happy with that? Would you have had anyone else? No, I think he deserves it. I think it's really impressive. Um, I must admit, I've kind of always underestimated him. I always had him down as a decent player, kind of eight out of 10 in every area player. Um, But he's obviously just gone to a completely different level over the the last few years, um, particularly since Ronaldo's departure. And I couldn't really see any other alternative here. I mean, there was no Euros or or World Cup this year. There was an AFCON, so that comes into into play. But really, I think it was about... um, 
the Champions League knockout stages. And he, I can't remember a Champions League knockout stage that was so dominated by one player. I mean, he was just almost single-handedly winning games. So yeah, it's an incredible achievement. And and one thing, I don't know whether anyone else has pointed this out, but for quite a while, towards the start of his career, I suppose, he was always in, in competition with Gonzalo Higuain for who should start up front for Real Madrid. And it was always a bit 50-50, I must admit. I always slightly favoured Higuain. I thought he was just a, a better finisher, better number nine. And they're very similar age. In fact, they were born uh, nine days either <laughs> side of one another. Wow. Um, those nine days in between, in fact, I was born. So a real, <laughs> real topical uh, December 1987 for this. Um, but Higuain announced his retirement this week. You know, having been in MLS for three years. And what a contrast that is. One's announcing a retirement... And in the same week, the other one wins the Ballon d'Or for the first time. I mean, that that shows how late Benzema's peaked. Um, and yeah, I, I think a really, really impressive achievement to, to win this. I think it's fair to say that you're still not reaching your peak, Michael. You've still got so far to go as well. <laughs> I think I, pe- I peaked too early, to be honest. I'm, no. I'm more on the Higuain scale than the Benzema no. scale, I think. Uh, uh- a lot of people have been wondering whether you've got an idea for a third book and, and at the moment the evidence is pointing to, to perhaps the fact that you don't. So, you know, more, more to be seen on that point. Mark, a breakdown of Benzema's year, uh, the numbers that back it all up. What an incredible season. Well, yeah, absolutely. And this is the thing. I don't think you can, you know, I agree with Michael. I don't think you can really complain about him him winning. And it, it, it wasn't just the goals in La Liga, as, as Michael said, 27 goals in La Liga, obviously winning La Liga as well but it was the volume and the importance of the goals in the Champions League so 15 goals in the Champions League which is just ludicrous in itself but he sometimes won the, the games on his own out of what were half chances some of them is just flashing across him and you know, I just remember he was just putting it in the corners with just such skill and you know you break it down so Paris Saint-Germain he scored a hat-trick next game against Chelsea scored a hat-trick um, from the round of 16 and the quarterfinals the other game against Chelsea scored a goal two goals against Manchester City in the away leg in the semi-finals another goal in the the home leg um, granted didn't score in the final but obviously you know Real Madrid won the Champions League and it's just him stepping up in those sort of important games as well as the volume um, 12 assists in La Liga as well which isn't to be sniffed at so it just kind of felt like his season so absolutely no complaints about him winning it strikes me as as mark talks uh, particularly about that game against chelsea that uh, benzema was often as as many players in his position are uh, uh, compared to original ronaldo brazilian ronaldo in the early parts of his career because he was so dynamic and he could throw a step over cut inside and, and smash it into the net from 20 yards he could run in behind and you know it, you know that the physical attributes and the technical skill were a, a pretty heady mixture in those early years at, at lyon uh, of course the development of him as a player has taken him to a a very different profile of striker which we'll talk about in a second but uh, that game against Chelsea, that performance against Chelsea was almost his, and I guess the appreciation of the English football fans who, who witnessed it, in this case Chelsea, was somewhat reminiscent, Michael, of Ronaldo's game against Manchester United back in 2003, which is always referred to as one of the best performances from an opposing player on English soil in, in the Champions League game. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was really fantastic. I remember watching this game, I was in... A- in an Irish pub in Chicago with about three other people just like looking around at each other thinking, wow, this is absolutely amazing. It was, yeah, and he, he did it in, he did it in multiple games in the Champions League knockout stage. 
I mean, kind of to repeat what I said before, I can't remember last time a knockout stage was so dominated by one player. I think probably Kaka in 2007, which was the, the um, with the exception of that Modric in 2018, it, it, before the uh, Messi and Ronaldo era, he was the last one to win it. That felt like a similar kind of thing. So, um, yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, I was looking at the um, looking at the odds for the Ballon d'Or a couple of weeks beforehand. And, I mean, he was about 10 to 1 on Benzema. There was no other candidates, mm-hmm. really. And I think that's probably fair. There's a lot of talk about peak age in football. Mark, it's a part of data analysis and, and in some cases, splitting that. Uh, you know, it's different per position. There's been a lot of work done on this. Um, how How then do we explain... Karim Benzema being the best player in the world 14 years after his first 20 goal league season with Lyon. Yeah, he's kind of breaking the mould, but there's been plenty of players who have broken the mould, obviously Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo being key to that. And I think it is something where, yeah, you're right, analysis has been done on peak age. Tom Warville, who's someone we still shout out to this day, which I'm, I'm very glad of, um, has, has done analysis on that and breaking it down per position of, of peak age. And I do think it's something which needs to be constantly evolved because what is the peak age 10 years ago, 20 years ago, etc., is probably no longer necessarily peak age. And it just seems like there's almost too many players, a sample size that's big enough to question, is 34 probably what we'd consider to be, and now it doesn't sound that ridiculous, mm-hmm. but maybe a 31 of a few seasons ago that there's just enough, granted, elite players who are just tipping it slightly towards yeah getting to, to mid-30s and still being at the peak of their powers but then you give the example of Higuain as well that that's a, a sample of two and one's you know just retired and, and one's yeah arguably at the peak of their powers so <laughs> but there's plenty of you know maybe not willing winning Ballon d'Ors but that if can you say Ballon d'Ors that feels wrong as someone with a French degree I feel like I've probably upset some French people there let's move past it um, there are also Mark uh, and it's the beauty of the game plenty of players between the ages of what 17 and 23 who are heavily impacting elite football as well so it's a yeah it's a broad church at the moment isn't it mm. Michael I wonder if if a, a part of the conversation about Benzema's age links in with the conversation about how he is playing in the last few seasons how he is impacting games, winning games at the very top level, predicated not on a a physicality that sets him apart or being absolutely genius on the ball like Messi at his peak, let's say. But it feels to me like a sort of triumph of football intelligence, of the sort of movement and timing of runs that often comes with experience. Yeah, I agree. I, I think experience is a big factor. I would very broadly, very broadly say that players who rely on athleticism and dynamism tend to be young and players who are in more central positions, uh, whether that's centre-back, central midfield, or this type of centre-forward tend to peak later. Obviously, there's big variations within that, but you're right. I think he is, it's not just the post-Ronaldo thing. I think he is a better player now um, than he was five years ago. And the interesting thing, of course, is that he missed out on France winning the World Cup. I mean, the, that's the one thing lacking, really, from his career. He's won the Ballon d'Or. He's won the Champions League multiple uh, times. And, uh, yeah, next month or the month after, if we're being strict, he's got the chance to put that right. And if he does win the World Cup as the reigning Ballon d'Or holder, he probably goes up to another level in terms of how he's regarded mm. as one of the all-time best players. 
Well, in previous years, a World Cup in November, December would have been a real uh, sort of headache for, for the Ballon d'Or, wouldn't it? But they, they changed it. This was the first time in the history of the award that it was given based on the results of a a season as we would define it in European football anyway, or in major European football uh, between August and, and July instead of just the calendar year, which uh, to my eyes anyway, clearly simplifies things. So pat on the back there for whoever made that uh, change, made that decision. Just a, a word on the award in general, Michael, are you are you happy with the Ballon d'Or as an award, as a proxy for best player in the world for a certain year, or as is now the case, a certain season? Does it generally do a good job of reflecting that in your opinion? Um, I think overall, yes. I think broadly speaking, it does. I must say, I think it's been a really bad few years for the concept and the institution of the Ballon d'Or, which used to be just a hugely respected award. But I think they've made some real cock-ups, to be honest. There was the slightly weird merge with the FIFA award, which lasted for a few years, and then they split again. I found that quite confusing. I thought the decision to cancel the award in 2020 was very strange, considering the vast majority of countries still played a full league season. Um, then they, I think I might say, didn't they, because they felt bad that Lewandowski didn't win it, they kind of just invented a, an award to give to him the next year that was that best strike reward. And then that vanished for the year afterwards, which kind of just showed they were trying to make up for it. And there's there's a slightly weird thing now with the voting change. They, they're switching to a system where only the uh, top 100 FIFA-ranked nations have a vote. Mm. And I don't really like that. I, I think it's quite... I think that's quite patronising, really. And I, I think there was a, something really nice about the fact that, you know, a judge from, I don't know, Burkina Faso had as much as a, you know, as much of a say as a judge from Brazil or something. I think that's, I mean, you'll get some fairly established countries just outside the top 100. Um, I think it's the top 50 for the women's game as well. Um, I, so always yeah, thought the, I always thought the delegate from Vanuatu was absolutely spot on with his voting. So. <laughs> <laughs> You're probably right. I mean, there's nothing to say that, I mean, you know, you can look at who the, who the person voting for England is and not, not sure I'd necessarily take their view over the one from uh, Vanuatu. So, yeah, there's a few things that I think the... I think they've made a few errors. There's so many. The thing is, there's so many individual awards now, just in so many different categories. And the Ballon d'Or has got that history and that prestige. And I can't help thinking they've slightly ruined that with some of their decisions over the last few years. Even if I, I think you're probably right about the calendar year thing. I think it probably does make sense. This could sound hugely ignorant, but I just want to double check. Who does make the decision? For England, who's the English delegate for this? I, I I'm not sure off the top of my head. I, right. Uh, I, I thought there was someone. Spe- I have a suspicion. I like that you've just you just you don't even know who it is, but you whoever. but you in, but you. I, I, you just I know who. I know inher- it was. You know you it was ten years ago. You inherently yeah. don't think that they're a very good judge, even though you don't have a particular person in mind. No. Anyway. Just, yeah. Was there a bit of <laughs> Was there a bit of noise when Hodgson did it? I mean, that was quite... He, he voted for Mascherano number one, didn't he? Oh, uh, of course. Which I thought was... I thought that was a really good shout. I mean, I would have voted for Messi because Messi was the best player in the world. But Mascherano had a brilliant World Cup. Like, he was so good in that tournament. And if you're an international manager who has a team at the World Cup, albeit not for too long, I thought that was... Um, I thought that was a fair point, to be honest. I thought it was a fair shout. Mascherano walked so that Messi could run, a lot of people thought at that time. Um, in, in second place in 2022, 
edition of Ballon d'Or was Sadio Mane. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're just going to whiz through the those who came second to fifth, sixth, seventh. I was interested in this. What's the case for Sadio Mane in second here, specifically in relation to his club teammate Mo Salah, who, who came fifth? Uh, of course, at club level, they, they will... They have to have achieved the same. So is it as simple as AFCON winner versus AFCON runner-up? Or, Mark, based on performances last season, is it fair to have Mane over Salah as well as that? Yeah, I'd say the international achievement did probably edge it here. And I think that with these sorts of awards, they do tend to favour those who have been more successful for either their club, but as you say, in this case, not relevant, but for their country. And is it fair to say that Messi, I mean, we know how great Messi has been over years, but last year, the Cup America was maybe kind of included as a as a weight within the decision. I, I don't know, but in terms of Mane's numbers, 16 league goals, only two assists, surprisingly. I thought that he was kind of more creative than that. 0.5 non-penalty goals per 90, which was Mark, completely in line. You're not measuring creativity with assists, are you? <laughs> yeah, not yeah. His expected assists weren't too high either. I must add, but I uh, but, but to only have two, like it wasn't even worth kind of really considering, you know, the, the a higher volume of, sure. of numbers in terms of expected assists because I thought that considering where he kind of used to be on the creativity, um, it, it seems a lot lower last year. And I know that he had the sort of renaissance of playing more centrally, and maybe there's an element of recency there where he sort of ended the season really well, having not done too well at the start of the season. Um, and the season before that, he I think he was just something really wasn't clicking, not just for Liverpool, but for him as well. But five goals in the Champions League um, for Mane and you compare it with Salah. Okay, so 23 goals for, for Salah, but only 18 non-penalty goals. So not too dissimilar from, from Mane's 16 uh, league goals. And Salah with 13 assists and his expected assists, you'll be pleased to know Ali was um, quite in line there as well. Um, a higher non-penalty goal rate, um, eight goals in the Champions League as well for Salah. So if you were to look at it based on the numbers, you'd maybe, of an individual output, you'd maybe give the edge to Salah. But I do think, coming back to, to what you asked, that the international achievement probably was a, a bit of a, a swinging factor there. Michael, let me just lob the Belgian Kevin De Bruyne into the mix here as well. He was um, in the top five. I think he was third, wasn't he, with Lewandowski fourth and Salah fifth. Um, just way up for me, KDB up against Mane and Salah finishing beneath Mane but above Salah uh, of course De Bruyne won the Premier League's official player of the season award Salah won the PFA player of the season award so there's quite a lot to to, to chew on here yeah I mean obviously he's, he's in there for really good consistent Premier League performance um, which I think is is fair enough I think he was excellent he showed another side to his his game last year he scored that hat-trick against Wolves hasn't really been a prolific goal scorer much more of an assister. And I think he's shifted back this season to being more of an assister. But yeah, I think he deserves to be up there. I think on, on Mane, it is about the international stage. And I think that is right. I mean, the AFCON is, was the tournament of this year. And twice he got the better in, uh, of Salah in Senegal against Egypt games, one in the AFCON final and one in the playoff for the World Cup. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's probably what tipped it. Okay, they're both on penalties. And you can say if the shootout goes the other way, maybe does the voting go the other way? Um, maybe, but you can say that for, I don't know, Cannavaro in 2006, if Italy don't win the World Cup on penalties, Cannavaro probably doesn't win the Ballon d'Or. So I'm, I'm pleased to see them both up there. Having looked at the voting, I don't think the figures have been released in terms of who voted for whom yet, but I suspect um, Mane and Salah probably got a huge share of votes from African countries. Mm. 
because that was their big tournament this year. And, and I think that's absolutely right. The, the Kevin De Bruyne shout as well. I think we spoke about this with the FIFA Pro Awards. I do think they just consider what we consider to be the the basic numbers of you know just goals and assists. Because and, Kevin De Bruyne scored 15 league goals, I think, if I'm not mistaken, eight assists, which from a goal scoring perspective was the best season of his career. You think about how good of a finish finisher he is. He's a fantastic finisher, but that was from an expected goals of 6.4 in the Premier League. So he heavily overshot his expected goals. Um, I don't know, you just maybe think that he's a fantastic player, the performances that he gives and the importance that he adds to Manchester City. But is he kind of bumped up simply because from a numbers perspective, he's been, he was as good as he ever had been last season as well. I don't know. Well, Robert Lewandowski was about as good as he ever has been. And that is very, very good consistently. Uh, I like to uh, pull out the stat that in 16 full seasons, Robert Lewandowski has been the top scorer in the league in which he plays 10 times, comes second three times, he's come third two times. Uh, the only season where he wasn't in the top three was his first season at Dortmund where he was just settling into life in the Bundesliga. He's top of the La Liga charts at the moment. At last season's goal tally mark as strong as ever and worthy of a top five finish. He finished in fourth. Yeah, and 35 goals in the Bundesliga last season um, was higher than any other player in the top five European leagues. And even if you take out penalties, he was still basically averaging a, a goal per game, which was just mad. But I just find it funny, kind of alluding to what you just said, that that wasn't even the highest tally of his career. So he was he scored 41 goals in the um, the previous season. So that level of consistency is just frightening, to be honest. Um Slight quiz question for you both. Interestingly, yeah. on a per 90-minute basis, there was only one player who had a higher goal-scoring rate than Lewandowski last season. Also in the Bundesliga, not named Erling Haaland. Can you get it? He's exactly one goal per 90, but obviously fewer minutes played. I'm going to guess Christopher Nkunku. Good shout, but it was actually Patrick Schick at Leverkusen. Oh. You had a fantastic season um, at Leverkusen. Maybe wasn't quite given the, the recognition outside of Germany that mm. maybe he should have done. But um, sorry, yeah, I'm not normally the one who asks the questions. But uh, yeah, a, a frightening season for uh, for Lewandowski, scoring for fun and has clearly carried that on at uh, Barcelona. Just just stay in your lane, Mark, okay? You're going <laughs> to start... Or at the very least, let me know what you're going to ask before we record <laughs> so that I can have the answer ready. Uh, Michael Killian Mbappe finished sixth. Uh, you wrote about him this week uh, and I thought it was a really interesting piece. It touched on last season. So let's start there uh, in the 21-22 season and try and ignoring all of the current transfer noise off field stuff. He had an unbelievable campaign and, and in some ways that people maybe wouldn't have, uh, maybe wouldn't expect. Yeah, he came second in the goal-scoring charts across Europe behind Lewandowski, and he also came second on the assist charts behind Thomas Müller. And okay, Liga is easier to get goals and assists in, especially if you're playing for PSG. But that's not really the point. I think the point is that he was suddenly such a prolific assister. Uh, he doubled his previous best assist tally. Um, and this is the player he wants to be. I mean, there's been a lot of moaning from him over the last week or so, and I think a lot of that has been probably rightly seen as quite unprofessional and quite tedious and just typical PSG. But I think when you look at what he's actually saying and what he's actually complaining about, I think it's really interesting. He's saying he doesn't want to be just a number nine. He he wants to be someone who is involved in more of the game. He wants to come short and create. He wants to be an all-round attacker. And I do think that's quite interesting that he's 
I mean, most people would say, yeah, I'd quite like to play up front with Messi and Neymar providing through balls mm. to me. That, that will go down quite nicely. Mm. Um, but yeah, modern forwards want to be different. It, it tends to be the way even someone like Lewandowski, you know, seemed to consider himself as much a number 10 as a number nine. No one really wants to be a pure striker. I wonder what feels that the most the most obvious fit right now for him if, let's say, he'd love to play on the left of a front three, but but dropping in and, and getting involved in build-up as well as, as running in behind. Uh, Barcelona spring to mind in that they have Lewandowski as the nine and they've got some incredible ball-playing midfielders and obviously Mbappe would improve them quite a lot off the left. I, I don't say Real because they have Vinicius, who's been magnificent in in what strikes me as a similar role to what Mbappe would be after. Uh, I'm avoiding saying Manchester City because the thought of Mbappe and Haaland playing mm. together uh, is, is a bit too much to compute. Uh, it's, it's certainly an interesting question. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Thibaut Courtois won the Levy Ashen Trophy. Uh, and I think it'd be interesting just to touch on goalkeepers because in three editions or the last three editions of this award, there have been three different winners and seven different goalkeepers out of the nine spots on the podium, which seems like a a decent range over three years. And Mark seems to me to tie into discussions that we've had before just about the, the difficulty in definitively rating goalkeeper performance and how goalkeeper performance changes over seasons. Yeah, that's a really good point about the volatility of a sort of shot-stopping performance. It's like thinking about a, a striker's performance as well. But yeah, I think talking about goalkeepers was my debut on this uh, podcast, and we we have spoken a lot about it since. And thinking, you know, about things like expected goals on target and goals prevented, you know, based on the quality of shot and things like that. But you think about yeah, the best keepers playing for the best teams, so they don't have quite as much to do. Um, so, so yeah, some keepers are busy and others. So maybe. Some 
keepers numbers can be quite skewed by the fact that they are busier so they have more opportunity to uh to save shots and prevent goals so what you can do as a as a way sort of around that is to look at goals prevented rate which adjusts for the volume of the shots and see i guess the yeah, the degree to which a, a goalkeeper concedes at a rate above or below so above or below one so a figure above one means they're saving more than they're conceding and below one is vice versa so that's probably a good way to i guess have a bit of a workaround because as you say some goalkeepers are busier than others but there's so many unquantifiables with goalkeepers as well and there's I guess so many blind spots when using metrics to appraise and numbers to appraise a goalkeeper's performance so I think the best analyst around in looking at the the numbers within this is uh, John Harrison does fantastic goalkeeper analysis and some some great work looking at things like body position in one-on-ones and created his own models around that and looking at optimal strategies of those one-on-ones depending on the context and things like that but that's also just then looking at I guess what is half of the the job of a goalkeeper so you haven't even factored in distribution and having the ball at your feet which is so integral to to what a goalkeeper does now so really hard to to rate with numbers far more qualitative i think with uh with goalkeepers but there's no doubt courtois has had a, a great season and he said so as much hasn't he <laughs> he has but i'm not even on the podium being the goalkeeper who's won la liga and the champions league not a happy man uh, michael do you think he has a point are goalkeepers underrated uh, in these kind of uh, awards in, in these kind of polls um i, I got to say i find Courtois really irritating as, as, as <laughs> yeah. a player, but, but annoyingly i think he has got a point here i mean he was man of the match in the champions league final one of the best individual performances you'll see in a champions league final he was really good throughout the season i'm not sure he necessarily deserves to win it but Probably the best shout a goalkeeper's had, I guess, is Neuer in, in 2014, who I think was really notable because of how he played, you know, tactically how he played the the role of goalkeeper. Um, Courtois, I'd say a much more traditional goalkeeper, a shot stopper, really. Um, but he did have a very good season um, and probably does deserve to be a little bit higher on the list. Yeah. Hey, there's an award called Club of the Year. <laughs> it feels like a complete waste of time. It feels like the Champions League trophy is a, is a good, <laughs> pretty good proxy for that. But it didn't go to the winners of the Champions League trophy, Real Madrid. Instead, it went to Manchester City uh, after Pep's side won their fourth Premier League title in five seasons. Uh, Michael, what what's this all about? I, I sort of, like inherently, Real Madrid fans going getting really angry about something like this. I, I would probably try and, and be a bit more measured. But I think I'm fully with them here. What What's going on here? Yeah, I, I, I don't know really what the point in this award is. I, I, I completely agree with you. I think if you're going to have an award like this, it'd be really nice to go for kind of a bit of an outsider, like someone who's punched above their weight and, you know. Union Berlin. Oh, nice. <laughs> I mean, yeah, maybe a bit early for them, but I mean, Senegal would be, I mean, that would be a nice one to give. I mean, they won their first over AFCON. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it'd be nice to give recognition to someone outside the elite since, you know, like you say, there is literally a trophy for the best team, <laughs> the best club team. Um, waste of time. I only realised this this morning, having read Sam Lee's piece, but I didn't realise that the club of the year is based on the who the club is, who has the most individual nominations across the different categories. Oh. So it's an it's adding it all up together, I think. That would have been such valuable research to do before the podcast so well but done Mark. it's okay we're there we're there now it's fine so i think that's kind of why but i suppose that 
I'm making the case for Manchester City a little bit more here based on that. Um, so I think that's how it came to be. Okay. Uh, and a quick gut instinct winner. For- hang on. Hey, wait, hang on. I've got, I've got the voting figures here. Real Madrid have got four of the top nine. Man City have got third, 12th, 22nd, 22nd, 25th. I, it's a across, good fit. I, I'm across not sure all you're categories. Right. I think it says across, oh, across all, categories. all categories. Okay. Think, yeah. Sorry. Maybe. Maybe, maybe you're right. Oh, hang on. Then Holland. Well, does Holland count? Because this is just last season, isn't it? Well, that's a good question. Mm, I don't it probably know. doesn't count. Ugh, it's very complex, a, this. It's turning into an expose, I would say. Um, <laughs> also, you say across all awards. I mean, Courtois, we know, won the, the Ashen Award. I know, We're about yeah. to talk about the, the Copper Award, where Real Madrid had the, the player in second, Man City, nowhere to be seen in that. Very strange. Um, next year's predictions. We are, we are but two months into the season. Uh, Michael and Mark, give me a, a gut instinct winner for the Ballon d'Or 2023. So much depends on the outcome of the the trophies. I mean, the way that Holland started the season, if he carries on that and City either win the league or the Champions League, I think he's going to be there or thereabouts, surely. I'm surprised he wasn't higher uh, for this award, to be honest. Um, Holland's got to be up there. I want to see Bellingham up there as well um, as someone who's just so exciting to watch. They're, they're my initial shouts. Michael, what about... Uh... Lionel Messi wasn't even in the in the in the on the shortlist last season. Pretty decent numbers so far this campaign. Yeah, I did think it was slightly odd he wasn't even in the on the shortlist. I mean, he's he, yeah, he took a while to get going at PSG, but I, I still think I'd have him ahead of some of the players who did make the shortlist for next year. I mean, I think the World Cup will play a big part. I think Benzema could uh, could be up there again. I don't think it's impossible that Neymar. Is up there again. I think Brazil, well, they'd be my favourites for the World Cup. Uh, Neymar will be their star player. I think he could could come into contention. Um, but yeah, you have to think the World Cup will probably play a big role. Although I don't know, maybe people will have forgotten by next October if it's ten months on. It's very difficult to say. Mm. Well, recency bias. I guess that's another question. How much does that affect awards like this? I think I think now that it is purely seasonal. And, and wrapped up in each season. I think that will help guard against recency bias, which certainly seemed like a bit of an issue in its previous guise. Uh, let's just weigh up the, the Copper Trophy. Uh, this is for under-21 men's players. Gavi of, of Barcelona won it. Camavinga of Real Madrid second. Musiala of Bayern Munich third. And Jude Bellingham of Dortmund fourth. Uh, are we are we okay with, with Gavi winning the the copper trophy what is it about him and his performances last season that that makes him number one well he's a very very good player he's he's typically barcelona isn't he um i think he's just one of those players who as soon as you see him it's obvious that he's very very talented um i think it probably could have gone to any of the top four really camavinga musiala bellingham i always am a little bit skeptical about this award because i'm not sure how many people really know enough or see enough to compare I don't know, Bellingham to Nuno Mendes. I mean, you've mm. got to have such a such a good knowledge and, and have seen such a lot of all the players across leagues. Um, so I think it's a bit of a funny one. But I must say the quality of the top four is very good. I mean, probably as strong as it's been for a few years, I would say. Gavi, Camavinga, Musiala, Bellingham. I mean, they are really, really good players. 
I haven't done so, but I reckon if you go back four years, it's probably not as strong as this. I think you're probably right. I, I The difference between second, third and fourth is, is arguably fairly unimportant. But Camavinga being second, having only started 13 league games and one Champions League game for Real Madrid last season, um, it is interesting to me. I wonder if he just gets a sort of multiplier because his club won the Champions League. But, um, but to be fair, he did. When he came on in the Champions League, he did like, I mean, they, they had a lot of comebacks, didn't they? in that Champions yeah. League period. And, and I think he did genuinely spark a couple of them. Yeah, that's that's a very fair point. It's interesting to me, uh, Mark, that with Casemiro having departed, Camavinga having been sort of waiting in the wings somewhat, I perhaps naively thought he might be earmarked for, for those minutes. But so far this season, only four La Liga starts. It's Chouameni who, who's playing in that position and started in El Clasico on the weekend. Um, is Camavinga going to have to wait for a, a Modric and a Cruz to leave before he starts starting games? Yeah, I think so. I mean, when he was at Rennes, he was playing, well, he could play in a central midfield or a defensive midfield role. And I think it was more in a double pivot than on his own. I think that Chuamani's attributes and qualities probably would be a bit more of a like-for-like replacement with Casemiro as being a bit more of a, a player to, to break up the play, be a bit more of a defensive destroyer. And I think that Camavinga's versatility may almost work against him here where he could sort of play anywhere whereas Chumeni's really good in a central defensive midfield role so I think given that given that Modric is we've been saying this for two or three seasons though <laughs> aging and probably a season away or or a couple of seasons away from maybe retiring then Camavinga will be the the heir to the throne there but Modric just keeps going on and is just such he still has such high quality so I think more the sort of replacing um, replacing Casemiro with Chiumeni makes more sense, and uh, Camavinga is able to play a bit more on the, the left or right of a three rather than just in the, the central defensive midfield role. And Musiala had a, an excellent campaign last season. His numbers this campaign are obscene. M- Mark, just just explain Musiala to me as if I've never seen him play before what makes him so good what's his role and 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 what's behind his numbers this season yeah he's kind of as a teenager already a bit like Bellingham actually he's made himself kind of indispensable to such a high quality team obviously Bayern Munich they they've lost because they lost uh, Lewandowski they've sort of shared the attacking contribution around a little bit more evenly between Musiala, Sadio Mane, Leroy Sané and, and Thomas Muller with, I guess, Serge Gnabry and Kingsley Coman off the bench as well and rotating between starting lineups. But it, he is so versatile and flexible, Musiala. He can play anywhere across Bar, uh, Bayern's uh, midfield in, in wide areas. He's played briefly as a striker for a short period, I think, since the start of last season. And he's added attacking output to his, his game. His goal scoring is running a little bit hot this season. He scored five goals from an XG of, of 2.7. I think he's got four assists as well. So his overall goal contribution is higher than anyone else in the uh, the Bayern squad, certainly within the league. Um, but I think his, his main skill set is that he's just, he's really mature for his age. He can keep possession so, so well. He's got real close control quite a wiry frame so he's able to twist and turn at really sort of sharp pace and just get away from uh, opponents with with ease as well you sort of step off him you can pick a pass you get tight to him you can wriggle away from you um all still as a teenager as well so massively exciting but almost as a compliment to him you couldn't really pin him down to a certain position because he's so Mm. versatile Uh, and and that makes me consider him just such an intensely modern young star that the yeah. sorts of players that are being produced at the moment it feels like this mixture of of 
on and off ball attributes, a kind of universality, I think they call it, where it feels like you could fill in in six different roles and still perform at the same level and, and still have a similar output because of the, the intelligence more than anything uh, and the technical skill. Michael, can I be a biased England fan and say that Jude Bellingham was a bit hard done by here, not being in the top three? He played a lot more than Kamavinga and Musiala, 30 starts in the league, eight in the Champions League, uh, just 12 starts in the league for Musiala last season and five in the Champions League. Both of those players have 17 international caps already, which just seems incredible for their age. It's such an exciting future for both of them, but Bellingham, a bit hard done by? A little bit, but didn't figure in the latter stages of the Champions League, and I think that's where this award is, is kind of won. And who do you think of, of the, let's say the five, will bring Nuno Mendes in, who, who finished fifth, uh, of Gavi, Kamavinga, Musiala, Bellingham, Nuno Mendes, uh, the top five in this year's Copper Trophy. Who do you think has the, the highest ceiling? I don't know. I'm never very good at judging a player's ceiling. As, I, as I've said earlier, I didn't think Benzema would be this good. Um, the one I like the most is Kamavinga. I just think he's brilliant on the ball. He's a different type of player to the others. Um probably the deepest operating of of the the four I'm excluding Nuno Mendes here sorry um but yeah I think he's I think he's fantastic and he's it's opened I mean Real Madrid didn't intend to sell Casemiro but it's opened up for him I think to uh to really make a make a place in in the team his own I think Bellingham has got rightfully a lot of hype um recently I think even more so because he's at a club where he could still go upper level so there's a lot of conversation around him where I think whereas I think a lot of the other players are kind of already at those top top clubs with the greatest of respect to uh, Borussia Dortmund so I'm going to say that the capacity for Jude Bellingham to to have a higher ceiling uh, I'm going to go with with him but I think on that note of just how much he's played as well I did a piece fairly recently on Jude Bellingham and I think for under 20 players so, or should I say players who are under 20 across Europe's top five leagues he has comfortably played um, the most uh, than any other let's say teenager mm. since the start of, uh, of last season so um, certainly got a lot of experience in the bank already started to, to get quite a few minutes at a very young age at Birmingham City and I notice off the bench in their last three or four league games 17 year old Job Bellingham has been getting some minutes one to watch for sure Hello, James Richardson here, presenter of the Totally Football Show. It's a show about football, and sometimes it's about life, and usually it's about an hour long. This Thursday, it's particularly about the midweek Premier League games, Ten Hag against Conte, South Coast Derby dust-up between uh, Bournemouth and Saints, and the story tradition of the all-West London-Brentford-Chelsea clash. I'll be asking dumb questions. Duncan Alexander, Carl Anker and Ahmed Schubel will have clever answers, and you can find all of that by searching for The Totally Football Show wherever you get your podcasts. Michael, the Women's Ballon d'Or Award was won by Alexia Puteas. Uh, she's gone back to back. That's two years in a row that she's won this. Uh, of course, as we discussed during the Women's Euros and our coverage of it, Puteas was absent. Uh, an ACL injury before the tournament didn't make her mark on that, the, the, the sort of big international tournament of the year. Um, was her club season that good that being at the Euros didn't matter? Was she the worthy winner here? It, it was very good. I mean, week in, week out, she she does just score goals, get assists. Whenever you watch her play, she just dominates the game like like probably no other player in women's football. So I think you can justify her being up there. 
I personally wouldn't have gone for her. I, I would have paid a bit more attention to the Euros. And I think her club teammate, Aitana Bonmati, is uh, is similarly influential for her club. Not quite as influential, but did have a really good Euros as well. I mean, she only got to the quarterfinals, but I think in off the top of my head, at least three of those four games, she was the best player on the pitch. I think she's absolutely fantastic. So I would have gone for Bonmati ahead of Puteo. So you do wonder sometimes whether there's, you know, if there's two players from the same club, whether one of them is a bit hard done by. And I think that probably has happened here. That's interesting as well. I mean, it does go against the grain somewhat for all that we spoke about um, with the, the men's awards that Puteas didn't win any, which is winning the individual awards, but didn't win any club or country awards because Barca Femini obviously didn't win the Champions League either. 3-1 loss to, to Leon. I think she scored within that final, still affecting the game, but for her, for her club and obviously didn't make it with a, a country to the Euros, it does kind of go against the grain for what we spoke about with the men's that someone who's winning it individually hasn't actually got the um, the club or country accolade. Elsewhere in the top five, Beth Mead was second, Michael Sam Kerr third, Lena Oberdorf at fourth and, and Bon Matti, as you mentioned, fifth. We did a whole episode around this time last year sort of panning the FIFA Pro World Eleven for the women's game as just seemingly being cobbled together on reputations more so than performances. Do you think this Ballon d'Or podium is a, is a better effort, improvements on that front? It probably is. I think it was quite a tough one to vote on this year because there's quite a lot of players who either did it in the Champions League or did it in the Euros, but not both. So Ada Hegerberg won the Champions League, but had a dis- well, Norway had a disastrous European Championship and she was obviously part of that Alex Pop for me was quite clearly the best player at the Euros but because of injuries didn't play much for her club Sam Kerr obviously Australian didn't take part in the Euros um, Oberdorf is a player who I think really her Euros performance was what puts her up here Pateus missed the Euros so it was quite a difficult one to vote on I would say mm. um, and yeah that's kind of the reason I would go for Bomati because I think she performed in in both I note down in 10th position there's um there's Lucy Bronze, who I think it's a bit, must say, it's a bit charitable for her to be in the top 10. And she's now at Barcelona, but she was last season at Manchester City. So I is that the reason why City have won Club of the Year, genuinely? <gasps> because they've got... Maybe. a Because Real Madrid haven't got anyone on the list. So I think that's the sixth player for Man City. I need so to go back that, and look at this. Yeah, maybe, maybe that has tipped them into Club of the Year. A player who doesn't even play for them anymore. Um because they couldn't be bothered to renew her contract, has uh, has won them club of a year. <laughs> well done, Lucy Bronze. Could Bronze have made all the difference? I, I think quite strongly that with a name like Bronze, you you either come third or you don't. Yeah. You, know, you don't come anywhere personally. But that's that's just me. Brilliant. Well, thank you guys. Uh, been really interesting to chat through um, awards, uh, Ballon d'Or winners and runners up and contenders in the men and women's game and the Copper Award as well. So thank you for your time and expertise this week. We go again next week on the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. I'm going to put in some calls, see if we can get Thibaut Courtois on as a special <laughs> guest. Some fireworks firing off because if, if Michael finds him uh, quite annoying, we should hear what Courtois thinks about Michael Cox's work. <laughs> I think that could be a bit of fun. Both of you very busy on site at the moment. Lots of written content going up. You're, you're both in, in rhythm. I think I can say that. Uh, I'm sure you, you'd be too humble to do so. So do head to The Athletic to read all of their articles. And if you're not a subscriber, but you'd like to become one today, theathletic.com forward slash tactics is the place to be. And make sure you join us next week. Make sure you're subscribed to The Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. Goodbye. 
The Athletic. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.